Uh, we're going to continue today, and we are continuing to have the conversation about ridiculous faith. We've been working through the book of Daniel, and uh, we actually wrap up our sermon series today. Remember, for those of you that don't know, this is the sermon series that we've been doing in conjunction with Revolution. So while we've been learning about ridiculous faith and what that means and what it takes, because we know that this merger ultimately is going to take ridiculous faith. You heard Blake talk about it. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And that's okay, and it's actually exciting because it means we are just following God and what he wants, he gets. Uh, we're, we're a little bit like, um, and this is maybe going to sound a little arrogant, but we feel a little bit to a degree like we're, we're Abram. And God said, hey, get up and go to the place I'm going to show you. And then every step along the way, it's, here's a little bit of clarity, and here's a little bit of clarity. And we're like, okay, we're just following God. We're running to keep up with Jesus. We are not getting in his way. We're going where he leads. And that takes ridiculous faith. And so we've been learning about that along with our brothers and sisters at Revolution Church um, in anticipation of this merger. And we've seen over the course of time, we've seen Daniel's faith show up. Right? It started with him just declaring boldly when he and his friends as teenagers were taken uh, from their homeland, taken from Jerusalem, and put into Nebuchadnezzar's training program. We, we saw them in that moment when they were asked to compromise faith. And what they were told was, look, if you'll just compromise your faith a little bit, you'll actually be elevated to a higher position. So what they were told was, if you just compromise a little bit here, you'll be rewarded here and it'll be worth it. But what they said in that moment was, no, absolutely not, unequivocally no. We know that you never are elevated by, by compromising. But what that happens is when we bow low and we promise God everything and our identity is our faith in the God of the universe, that he will take care of the rest. And so their faith was in their identity, and we saw, we saw that time and time again in these big moments. When, when Daniel, in humility, um, interpreted, because God allowed Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the kingdoms and the statue. And, and then we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and they had a faith that, that was to die for when they said, you know what? No, we're not going to compromise just a little bit. Do to us what you will, but our God is powerful and able to save and we saw it when, when their, their faith stood up to evil, when, when Daniel interpreted the writing on the wall and says to Belshazzar's face, look, you have been measured and you have been found wanting and God will judge you. And we saw it last week that Daniel has a faith that saves as he just doesn't shrink away when they say, hey, don't pray to your God. Don't pray to your God. Pray to Darius only for 30 days. What does Daniel do? He does what he normally does because his discipline is important and his devotion is important and he makes sure that everybody knows, hey, I'm with the God of the universe. And he puts himself in the crosshairs. And we said that as Christians, if we do it well, we live on that precipice daily. I don't think that anyone is looking to throw you in a lion's den. But by the way that you live, if you are truly honoring God first, by the way that you live, you are always on the precipice. You are always putting yourself in the crosshairs because you are always living in a way and saying true things in a way that is contrary to the rest of the world that we live in. It's contrary to the culture. And so what happens is we put ourselves out there. And if you're unwilling to put yourself out there, then ultimately what you're doing is you're compromising and you're not living a life of ridiculous faith. But Daniel has shown himself time and time again to be living a life of ridiculous faith. And if you're just jumping in here or you haven't really listened to me for the last five weeks, I get it. But what that means is that he is trusting God for the impossible. That's what ridiculous faith is. Ridiculous faith is trusting God for the impossible and then putting it into action. It's faith that works as opposed to faith that's an idea. See, and this is what we wrestle with in the church today. Faith that's an idea. It's a nice idea. It's a good thing. We can understand the idea of faith. But if God is real, if the Bible is true, if the things that it says are real, then what happens is my faith needs to go from a neat idea to faith that does something. Faith that makes a difference. 
faith that shows up. And this is the wrestle that we have, and this is the struggle that we have. And uh, we're going to see it one more time today, finally, in Daniel's life. And and we're going to see it in a place where I think we're going to discover a key. The key to a life of ridiculous faith. Okay, And that's going to be in his prayer life. See, we've said time and time again, we've said over and over again, that if you want to know if your faith will show up in those big moments, you have to ask yourself the question, what's my faith doing right now? Right? When somebody comes on you and says, you will do this or else, will you have enough faith to stand in the face of evil and say, no, 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 I can't compromise? Well, you want to know what the answer to that is, then ask yourself, what is your faith doing right now? What does it look like right now? Because if your faith is non-existent now, I promise you it will not be there in those big moments. But we've said that you need a life of devotion. You need a life of faithfulness in the small things so that when the big things happen, you are ready to go. And we've said that that's true for Daniel. We've said that it's true time and time again, but we haven't seen it yet. We've only seen snapshots. This is like a diary that we read. We've seen the big moments. But today we get to see a small moment where Daniel is just being faithful in the everyday. And because Daniel's being faithful in the everyday and because he's highly favored by God, and you'll see why as we get into the text, this small everyday moment turns into something huge. And it's in his prayer life. Last, last week I asked you about reading the Bible and I told you not to raise your hand, but I asked you how many of you can honestly say that you had spent one whole hour from Sunday after church to, to Sunday morning reading the Bible? One whole hour, which we decided was, because we're good at math, was less than 10 minutes a day Less than 10 minutes a day. And, and, and we didn't raise our hands, but my, my guess was not many of us could legitimately say that we'd spent one hour outside of church reading the word of God, God's word to us, less than 10 minutes a day, but yet we say we want to live a life of ridiculous faith, but we haven't spent that much time in the word of God. Well, it's the same question today. Ask yourself, how many of you have spent an hour between last week and this week in prayer? Less than 10 minutes a day. And some of you are like, I pray every day. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Or what are the other ones that we like? God's neat, let's eat. That one's shorter. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Yay, God. Or my parents' um, favorite when they were feeling snarky was Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Who eats the fastest gets the most? Amen. We pray every day, right? But I mean, I'm I'm talking about prayer. And most of of us, and by the way, here's the deal. Prayer is an important part um, of the adventure of having ridiculous faith, faith in the God of the impossible. You cannot have faith in the God of the impossible. Faith that shows up is real. Faith that works. Faith that does something. You cannot have it. Listen to me. This isn't me hedging. No, listen. You cannot have ridiculous faith that God is going to come through in the impossible if you are not developing a life of prayer. You can't do it. Not and be intellectually sound. I mean, you, you can do it and, and, and be lying to yourself, but you can't have legitimate faith that God is who he says he is and that he's going to come through if you can't even demonstrate that faith in, in a daily endeavor to be with him and talk with him. But Daniel, Daniel shows up, and, and Daniel shows us that his faith is real. And we're going to see that in Daniel 9 as we look at this. Um, and you know what's cool about this too? Is that this is Daniel... In this context, this is Daniel just praying. This is the first time in the book of Daniel where we've seen that nobody has done anything to cause him to make his faith show up. See, like in chapter one, he was taken from his homeland. He was put in this training program and they said, here, eat this food that would defile, uh, that, that would, that would defile you and that would be contrary to the law of God. And so somebody puts a law on him, and he says, oh, whoa, i got to stand up against that law because that law butts up against what I know to be true. And so he responds in faith to what somebody else does. And then in the second chapter, he's going to be killed. That's the law of Nebuchadnezzar is that all wise men will be put to death. And so in faith, he has to come up against that law. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, uh, they are supposed to bow down before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up, or they would be thrown into the furnace. And they, they, they refuse. They come up against that law that would compromise their faith in God. And they say, no, we will not compromise our faith in God. Right? We've seen these all along. Right? And then in this moment, though, what we see, Daniel's told he can't pray to God. And, it, and, and the law butts up against what he knows to be true, and he can't compromise what he knows to be true. But this time, this is just him in private. Right? There's no law. There's no pressure coming in from the outside. Nobody has come to get him and said, hey, you must interpret this for me. You must figure this out. Uh, Nobody said you have to do these things. This is just Daniel being who Daniel is. And who Daniel is, is a guy that reads his Bible. Uh, For him, it wouldn't have been in Bible form. He would have been reading the prophets and and the books of law and the history. But, But this is Daniel just reading scripture. It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of that one guy who became king of the Babylonians. Anybody who wants to do it? Remember the rule. You just say it with confidence. Nobody knows you're wrong. There you go. Azarias it is. Um, It was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of Azarias, who became king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of God as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So what I read here is that Daniel is probably just doing his daily devotions. Remember, his daily devotions are critically important to him. That's why when the rule came that he couldn't pray to any god or any person except for King Darius for 30 days, he defiantly went to his room, he opened his windows, and he prayed like normal because his devotions are critically important to him. And here we see Daniel just doing what Daniel does. He is doing daily Bible study. He is studying the scriptures, prayerfully studying the scriptures. It was the first year of King Darius. That's just reference. Okay, so, so this actually predates, okay, this text predates what we studied last week in Daniel 6, because Daniel 6, Darius had been the king, right? And all of that happened with the lion's den. This is the first year of Darius. This predates that. Not a big deal. It's just not quite in order. It's not meant to be chronological, Right? He became king during the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, learned from studying God's word. I was reading the word of the Lord. Daniel, who has shown his faith as real over and over and over again, and who God has poured out grace and favor on over and over and over again. That guy, guess what he's doing in his, in his free time? He's like, I better read Jeremiah again. Why? Because you don't ever get done with this. Daniel is, is 80 years old at this point. He is 80 years old. He has lived a life of faith. God has shown up in and through him time and time again. And what does Daniel do as an 80-year-old? He says, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll read Jeremiah again. And guess what? God shows him something new in reading Jeremiah. You're like, but I've read this before. Like, I've read it. I don't need to keep reading it. I've already got everything I'm going to get out of it. There's nothing new in here for me. Except Daniel, 80 years old, lived a life of faith. God has showed up in and through Daniel time and time again. Daniel is the epitome of a guy who says, you know what? I will go where God leads me. Let the consequences fall where they will. I have confidence. Right? You can picture Daniel singing that song. Got faith like me in the lion's den. Right? Because it's him. Like, he is the epitome of this kind of, right? My kids are both wildly embarrassed right now. I'm sorry. Actually, Travis wasn't paying attention, so he doesn't know. But Anil's whispering to him what happened. Uh, no, no, no. Here, that's unfair. Dude, he was looking at me the whole time. He was paying attention. It was just funnier that way. Where was I? There you go. I was about to sing a solo. Um, but, but here, here's the deal, right? Daniel has lived this life. Daniel has discerned so many things about the will of God and the character of God from the word of God. And yet here he is, and God shows him something new. And God shows him something new. And so during the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, learned, learned, right? Learned. It's not like I knew it and I reread it. I learned something I didn't know before. What I didn't know before was that that. The prophet said Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. Right now, Daniel is a pretty 
smart guy. He's a wise man. That's actually his title. He is one of the wise men of Babylon, right? He's a smart guy. So he says 70 years, and he starts to do some math. And he starts to realize, you know what? Word about year 67, year 68. And if Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years and we're in year 67 or 68, that means God must be about to do something incredible because we are still a conquered people. We are still slaves and there is no hope. But if God's word says, see, this is the thing, Daniel trusts God's word. Daniel trusts God's word unequivocally. When he reads it in God's word, he knows that it's true. He knows that it's true. What was he reading? Well, he was reading this. This entire land, this is the prophet Jeremiah saying this, before Jerusalem has been raised to the ground, right? There will be a moment where Jerusalem is raised to the ground. The temple will fall. Everything will be, will be smashed. The walls will be destroyed. Jerusalem will lie desolate. That hasn't happened yet. But it happens in Jeremiah's lifetime. And this is God giving a prophecy to Jeremiah that Jeremiah is recording through the power of the Holy Spirit for everyone to read. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, and and it goes on to say how God will restore. 70 years right? He keeps reading in Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I've promised, and I will bring you home again. See, he's reading the scriptures. 70 years. By the way, side note, you want to know why 70? Here's why 70. But during the seventh year, the land must have a Sabbath year of complete rest. It is the Lord's Sabbath. Do not plant your fields or prune your vineyards during that year. So God had instructed Israel before they even entered the promised land, before they even entered into the promised land, hey, when you get there, there's a couple of things that you're going to have to do that will be contrary to what you want to do. You are going to, every six years, plant, and if you're faithful, you will reap bountiful harvest, but on the seventh year, you will not plant. You will give the land a rest. In that time you will trust me to provide. And that should have been simple for them, right? Because this is the same God who said, hey, you know what? I know you're hungry. I got an idea. I'll make it rain manna. Only collect what you need for the day. Don't collect more. Some of them collected more, and by morning it had rotted and was full of maggots. But what they needed for the day was fresh and delicious and warm. Except on Saturday. Well, actually, it would have been Friday. Except on Friday. Because Saturday was the Sabbath. So on Friday, what he said is, hey, you know what you can do? Collect two days worth for today. But then also, it won't last any other day if you try to collect more. But today, if you collect more, guess what? It will last. And it will make it through the Sabbath because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so people collected twice as much. Some people probably didn't. Some people probably thought, no, I remember when I grabbed too much and then I opened it up and it was full of maggots and it was gross. I'm not doing that. And then they went hungry. But most people were probably said, okay, well, you know what? God is making it rain manna. I suppose he can make it last an extra day. But this is, this is the same. They should have known this. This should not have been a hard thing for them to figure out. But during the seventh year, the land must have a Sabbath year of complete rest. Well, guess what? They didn't do it. And we know that, that uh, there was a time of 490 years where they failed to give the land a Sabbath rest. Every seventh year of 490 years, then we know if we're good at math, is 70 years. We know that because we read it in Second Chronicles. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally, this is written after, after the fact, the land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. There's, there's a little side note in there for you. Actually, there's a couple things I want you to know. One is, listen to me. You might think you can get away with disobeying God because the bill doesn't come due for a while. And I've talked to some of you who really believe that's true. Some of you who really believe you can push off obeying God because the times when you have not obeyed God, it hasn't cost you anything. 
the bill comes due. Now, I don't say that to scare you or threaten you or anything like that, but, but this is a perfect example. For 490 years, the people thought, you know what, we can skip this law, this regulation. We skipped it once, nothing bad happened. We crossed our fingers. We skipped it again, nothing bad happened. People said, hey, stop skipping. Prophets said, stop doing that. They did it anyway. Nothing bad happened. Right? But the bill comes due. So I I would just say this to you without knowing intimately the details of your life for most of you. I don't know what sin it is that you have decided God doesn't really care about. Because I know you have it, right? I, I know there's some sin in your life and you've decided God must not really care about it because one, it's not as big as other people's right? I mean, they're like, okay, so we didn't give the land a Sabbath every seventh year, but we didn't sacrifice our children either. So, you know, it could have been worse, right? So you grade your sin. You're like, it's not as bad as somebody else's, but you've decided that God must not care or that it's not that big of a deal. And you keep pushing it and you keep pushing it and you keep pushing it. And listen to me, the bill will come due. It did for Israel. It, it will for you. That's, that's just the way that it goes. But 490 years, they skipped it. And then finally it came due. Daniel would have known this too because Daniel studied the scriptures. He studied Jeremiah. Predating Jeremiah was Isaiah. He would have studied Isaiah and he would have read this. He might not have known what it meant at the time. But I bet you he knows what it means as he learns, right? It says that he was reading Jeremiah and he learned that Israel would lay desolate for 70 years. Things might start to click now as he says, um, when he he starts to remember. And he probably went back to read and check and see what it said when when he read in Isaiah, right? This This thing about Cyrus. When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. A hundred years before Israel even went into exile, a hundred years before um, Jerusalem was laid waste, before the walls were destroyed, before the temple was destroyed, before the city was ruined, a hundred years before that, God says, through the prophet Isaiah, hey, there's going to be a guy named Cyrus, and I am going to say to Cyrus, you are my shepherd. And because I say you are my shepherd, you are going to do what I say. And here's what you're going to say at my command. Rebuild Jerusalem. Restore the temple. Why? Because I said so. Cyrus has no reason to rebuild Jerusalem. Cyrus has no reason to rebuild the temple, except for the fact that God tells him to do it. You read through Isaiah 45, and basically God says, there will be a king, his name will be Cyrus, and he will be my mouthpiece. Listen to me. Daniel, at 80 years old, spending his life in prayer, spending his life in the word of God, is learning something now that he had not previously known. Because every time you read the word of God honestly, prayerfully, God will teach you something. So this is, this is, and a lot of you ask, how do I read? How do I pray? How do I study? This isn't like a command from God or anything, but here's, here's something I would recommend based on this text, something that works in my life uh, when I'm smart enough to remember to do it. Um, and, and it's a way to approach reading scripture and it's a way to approach prayer. Here's what it looks like. One, just pray before you read. Ask God to reveal through the power of the Holy Spirit, ask God to reveal to you what he wants to reveal to you. And then read. And then guess what? When you read, pray fervently about what you read and what it means for you. What was God saying and how does that work for you? What's the will of God for you? See, sometimes prayer is just simply the missing ingredient to God moving in our lives. And we kind of get this picture, right? We get this picture because we say, okay, well, if Daniel's reading this, this is great. I love this because people ask me this all the time. Well, if God is sovereign and he's going to do whatever he wants to do, why would I bother praying about it? Right? It's like, why would, why would I bother to pray about it if God's just going to do whatever God's going to do anyway? Well, Daniel has complete confidence in the word of God. So if the word of God says that Jerusalem will lie desolate for 70 years because of their sin, 
and that when 70 years is over, a guy named Cyrus is going to be king. He's not king yet, but he's going to be king. And a guy named Cyrus is going to say, hey, you know what? It's time. Go back. Rebuild the city. Restore the temple. Daniel knows that's going to happen. That is fact. Why would he pray about it? Because Daniel knows something. It's his prayer, okay? It's our prayers that provide the engine for God to do what God wills to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us this, that you are remade in Christ. As a believer in Christ, you are remade in Christ to do the good works that he had laid out for you. God has willed that things will be. Part of his design for those things to be is you. You are not accidental. You are not a mistake. You are in the time and in the place that God has designed you to be to do the good work that he has designed you to do. We wrestle, humanly speaking, we wrestle. If God is sovereign, then what does he need me for? And if God is sovereign, can I really have free will? And if God is sovereign, is this really necessary? And I'm going to tell you the, the problem, the reason you'll never be able to answer that question. By the way, theologians have been wrestling with and arguing over those things for years. Denominations have split over them. Calvinism and Arminianism are two factions of Protestant Christianity, both good, well-meaning Christian people. They are two factions that exist because we wrestle over this. And, and, and I don't know what the answer to any of that is. I, I don't pretend to know the answer to what any of that is, and I can't know the answer to what any of that is because you know what? I'm a finite created being, and God's ways are so far above mind ways that this is, Deuteronomy tells us, 28, this is one of the secret things that belongs to God. This is his. It's not mine. This isn't for me to figure out. You know what's for me to figure out? What it means to be obedient. That's exactly what Daniel does here. He doesn't get wrapped up in the, well, if God said so, I don't really need to pray. He doesn't get wrapped up in the, how is God going to pull this off? It seems impossible. He reads it in the word of God and he says, you know what? It is settled. I'm just going to pray for it. I'm going to do my part. Listen, sometimes prayer is the missing ingredient to God moving in your life. You're like, I want God to move in my life. I want God to do something incredible. I want God to do something real. I want God to, I want God to use me to make a difference. But you have yet to sit down and pray to the God of the universe, and you expect him to do something in and through you. It makes zero sense. And you know it. You know it. It makes no sense at all. You can't expect God to move in your life without prayer, especially a prayer confession. And that's what Daniel models for us. Let's get into this here and see his prayer. We're going to move through his prayer actually pretty quickly, um, and I would encourage you to read it in its entirety on its own, but I'm just going to highlight some of the, uh, the modes with which he prays. Okay? So, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. This is, this is the way that God prays, or this is the way that Daniel prays, and this is um, an expression of uh, mourning and sorrow, of grieving. The rough burlap, right? Like somehow, like, like so he, he would take off his regular comfortable clothes, and he would put on his um, mourning clothes. Not like mourning, like his robe and slippers, but M-O-U-R-N, like mourning, like he's sad. And he would put this on just as this mode of being constantly uncomfortable. And he covered himself with ash. You read about a similar expression from Job when everything is terrible and everyone has died and he's broken out in sores and everything is ruined. He sits down in his rough burlap and he smears ash on himself and that's just his mode of mourning. But Daniel, he, he comes to God here. So this is weird. He's reading Jeremiah and God teaches him something. By the way, some of you, some of you have said to me that you expect when you open up the word of God and you read the word of God, you just expect it to make sense. You're like, oh, I should read the word of God and I should just understand everything. Daniel, Daniel had to discover it in Jeremiah 
understand it from Leviticus and then figure out what's next from Isaiah. He's got to study the word of God. Some of you, 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 just, you pick up the Bible, you randomly flip it open, you read a chapter, and you're like, okay, I got it. And that's great. If, if you were going to do nothing, do that. But there is a moment where some deeper study helps. If you're not using Right Now Media, there are great Bible studies, in-depth Bible studies that teach you how to study the Word of God and, and how to understand that are on Right Now Media. Uh, ask Malia or Mike Lutz. Those are, those are two people um, in the church that I know that, that really understand how to. I mean, there are others, so, so please don't feel slighted if I didn't name you. But those two, um, two people that really understand how to study the Bible. Ask them. Make sure you sign up for one of their small groups next time around. But, but I mean, dig in. You got Listen, it's nice to open it up and read it, and that's great. But, I mean, it, Daniel, Daniel, he had, to, he, he had to pour over it and prayerfully work through it. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. This is Daniel getting ready to pray. I got ready because this is serious and it's emotional. But he did it with confidence because this is something else he knew. See, Daniel's whole mode in this prayer was, okay, God, I've trusted your word. Now I'm going to trust your character. When you trust the word of God, that allows you to trust the character of God. Right? If, If I believe the Bible is true, then I can believe what God says about himself. And here's what God says. He says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for good, not for disaster. They're plans to give you a future and a hope. And that's in Jeremiah. That's the same text that says, Jerusalem will lie desolate for 70 years, but then I'll call my people home. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you. See, if we trust God's word, we can trust God's character. If his word is true, then what he says about himself is true. And here he says, look, I'm good. I'm good. I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans. They're not for disaster. They're not to harm you. But I am good, and I have plans to do good for you. Okay? So Daniel four or 9, four says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And we're going to see his confession here. It starts with a confession of sin. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We've refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. Daniel is taking responsibility. I love this. Daniel has Um, Other than just, uh, we all harbor sin in our heart because we're fallen, broken people. But Daniel has showed up. He has lived a life of faith. Remember, he has been in political service. There are no scandals. There are no affairs. There are no rumors. There are no bribes. There's nothing to accuse him of except for, hey, he followed God before kings, right? But Daniel, even there, is saying, you know what, though? We, as a people, collectively have sinned. Guys, we as a church have sinned. Right? As blessed hope, we have sin. More than that, as blessed hope, as a part of a larger church community, as a part of the global church, we have sin. As a part of the church in America, we have sin. And we can learn from Daniel that we can be united with our brothers and sisters in this way. We could sit back and point fingers and say they're doing it wrong. Or what we could do is this we could say, look, God, we've sinned and done wrong as your people. We've rebelled against you. We've scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets who spoke on your authority. Daniel confesses the sin of his people, and he admits that they refused to listen. God took steps. Remember way back when we talked about the prodigal son, right? God sounded alarm after alarm after alarm in his life, and he kept hitting the snooze button, and he kept hitting the snooze button. Well, God did the same thing for all of Israel. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to tell the truth, to give warning, to say, stop, don't do this thing that you're doing because it is going to end badly, and the bill will come due because that's the way it works. But we didn't listen We kept pushing it off, and we kept pushing it off, and we kept pushing it off. And Daniel says, we are guilty of that sin. And he confesses it to God. He continues um, to confess that they have shame. 
It says, O Lord, we and our kings and our princes and our ancestors were covered with shame because we've sinned against you. But the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instructions he gave us through the servants and the prophets. See, he takes it another step here. He says, look, look, look. We've sinned, and because we've sinned, we have shame. As a people, we have shame. Somehow in the church, we've been taught that feeling shame is bad. I, I need to explain this to you. I, we need to talk about this for a minute because I, I can't, um, well, I can't have you misunderstand me. And I, I want you to track with me here because this is a big deal. You should have shame. The word of God is clear. Character of God is clear. God says in scripture that you are to be holy because I am holy. We aren't holy. You should have shame. Now, I mean, I want to be clear that you don't have to live with shame forever. But you should have shame. But somehow in the church, especially the American church, especially in the feel-good pop psychology church that we like to have, you've been taught that God is only supposed to make you feel good. And that church is only meant to build you up and lift you up. And it's only meant to make you feel good. And it's only to tell you that you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. But you should have shame. Shame Daniel tells us, look, we are ashamed. We are covered in shame because where you were clear, we went our own way. And when you said don't, we did anyway. And when you said stop it, we said we don't want to listen to you. And we just went further and further and further to the distant country. We just went our own way. God says, look, Daniel, Daniel tells us here, through, and the Holy Spirit is telling us through Daniel, look, you will have shame and that's okay. That shame, there's a word for that. We would call that godly sorrow. We talked about this at men's breakfast yesterday. By the way, if you uh, weren't able to join us at Revolution Church for men's breakfast yesterday, you missed out on good breakfast, good conversation, and a nice time with, with other men of God learning from the word. We were in James, uh, second Tuesday, no, second Saturday, nine o'clock every month, um, there'll be sign-up sheets out here all the time. You can check the Facebook event all the time. But, but every month, second Saturday, we, we get together to study the Word and eat breakfast and have a good time together. But we talked about godly sorrow yesterday. Talk about shame. This is godly sorrow. You know why godly sorrow is necessary? Second Corinthians 7 tells us godly sorrow is necessary because it leads to repentance. There's a difference between godly sorrow and shame and condemnation. The enemy will try to push you down. The enemy will try to make you wallow in your shame. The enemy will try to make you wallow in your shame. The enemy will try to make you live in your shame and in your past and in your mistakes. The enemy will try to push you there. Well-meaning Christians may try to keep you there. We may try to hold you under because we want to... Listen, listen, listen. It's misguided at best. Condemnation is not for you, but shame leads to godly sorrow, leads to repentance. And when I repent, I turn from my sin, I'm following Jesus. Then guess what? Because I've acknowledged my shame and confessed it, now I get to live free of it. This is the process that Daniel's leading through. He says, he, he's confessing, look, we have sinned. And because of that sin, we have shame. And, and he takes it a step further and he says, look, you know what? Not only that, but the punishment, that was just. So now the solemn curses and judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured down on us because of our sin. You've kept your word and done to us and our rulers exactly as you warned. Never has there been such a disaster that happened in Jerusalem. Daniel is saying, look, look, we confess our sin. 
And because of our sin, we have shame, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And you disciplined us just like you said you would. The punishment that happened, right, that's on us. Parents, how how much do you long to hear that from your kids, right? Right? Like when they're in trouble, if they would just say to you, yeah, that's on me. Yeah, here's the keys to my car. I knew it, right? I know I shouldn't have done that. Like, you know what? Here, let me give you back last week's allowance because I knew better, right? Here it is. Doesn't happen very often, but that would be cool. But, but this is what Daniel's doing for God. He's, he, he's saying, look, I'm confessing our sin. We are shame. We have godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And hey, that punishment you sent, it was just. You told us a long time ago you were gonna do that. Okay, look at this. But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. This is Moses before they enter the promised land saying, hey, by the way, this is going to happen. If you don't listen to God, all of these curses are going to come and overwhelm you. The last of the curses is this. The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth and it will swoop down on you like a vulture. And that's exactly what happened. And so Daniel's saying, look, you warned us He's confessing sin. He's living in shame and godly sorrow when he's repenting from sin and saying, you know what, God, and, and you warned us that this would happen. Look, here's, here's the truth, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. Remember what I said? The bill comes due. You will harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. The bill will come due. Daniel is walking us through this prayer, this prayer of confessing sin, of understanding that shame leads to godly sorrow and repentance, and saying, okay, God, I understand that you discipline because you love. That's what Hebrews 12 says, right? You said you would do this, you're doing this. God disciplines those that he loves, and it continues. Now, here's here's where it turns to hope. Daniel is confessing sin. He's saying, okay, God, you're doing all of this. I understand this is all part of the process, but in view of your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Oh, God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead for your own sake, Lord. This is the ask. God, turn your anger away from us. God, let go of your wrath and your judgment. Father, take your heavy hand of discipline away. Make your face smile on us once again. For your own glory's sake, for your name's sake, lift us up. Christian, we're talking about Daniel praying for the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, but, but this, is, this is something that many of us need to pray. This is something many of us need to pray because many of us are not where we need to be and we know it, and so we need to come to God in confidence with his word, in confidence um, in his character. And because we are confident in God's word, we can be confident in his character. And now Daniel says, because I know that God's word is true, I know that he is who he says he is, he can be confident in his will. He says, okay, God, do what you will do. And I am confident in it because I know that you're good. So I trust whatever comes next. And Daniel says, look, in view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please do this thing. Listen, in your life, Some of you just need to confess your sin. But not just acknowledge your sin. See, acknowledging sin, that's that first part. But you need to be ashamed of your sin. You need to have godly sorrow over your sin. I mean, your sin, like like, like, like saying, yep, yep, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That's one thing. But you need to be broken over your sin. You need to have godly sorrow over your sin. You need to acknowledge that God is right when you have discipline and you need to acknowledge that God is just and then ultimately you need to ask God for favor in moving forward. Many of us need this step. Many of us need to say, okay, God, I know I'm broken and I know I sin. God, forgive me of my sin. I'm turning and I'm walking towards you. My godly sorrow has led to repentance and I'm going towards you. And I know that there are things in my life that have happened because of my sin, right? But I'm walking towards you now. And this is the part that you need to do. You just need to ask God for favor. 
I mean, some of you need to confess your sin in the first place, and some of you certainly need to have more shame over your sin, but some of you, this is where some of you are living. Some of you have confessed, and some of you have this godly sorrow, and it weighs down heavy on your heart. Some of you just need to be at this point where you say, okay, God, please show me favor. I trust your word, and I trust your character, but God, God, I, I want to trust your will, and it's good for me. Please show me favor. I don't, I don't know individually who's there, but I know some of you are. Some of you just need to trust that God has, in fact, forgiven you and that God is, in fact, wanting to shine his face on you and God is, in fact, wanting to lift you up. For time's sake, we'll keep going here real quick uh, and we get to this last part. Um, Good news, God says yes. And he does it immediately. God answers prayer. As I was praying, Gabriel came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I've come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I'm here to tell you what it is. For you are very precious to God. Daniel is very precious to God. You know why Daniel's precious to God? It's the same reason you're precious to God. Because you are his masterpiece. Back to Ephesians 2.10. You are his craftsmanship. You are created intimately, carefully, wonderfully. You are knit together in your mother's womb, and you are, you are made new in Christ. If God had a fridge, your picture would hang on it, right? He probably does. I mean, can you imagine, right, like God pulling out his wallet, pulling Gabriel over. Gabriel, come here. <laughs> come on. Look at my kids. Look at them. Gabriel, what's he going to do? I mean, it's God. He's got to look. I mean, you know how awkward it is when somebody wants to show you pictures of their kids, right? Listen, I love your kids. I don't want to see their pictures. I just don't. Not while we're in the grocery store. But that's when you want to show me. But that's fine. Now I just offended somebody. I'm sorry (laughs) if that was you. Your kids' pictures are very lovely. Uh, But you get what I'm saying, right? Like, like, Like God feels that way about you. You are highly favored. You are very precious to God. And when you pray prayers of confession and you live in godly sorrow and you strive for repentance, God is there to answer your prayer and pick you up. Daniel shows ridiculous faith through his prayer. We can do the same. And so um, the, the caution for you there is to remember that God isn't a genie. And a prayer is not a wish. If you want to know how to have success in your prayer life, it looks like this. Figure out what the will of God is and pray about what that means for your life. 1 John 5.21 tells us that, uh, um, that sometimes, I got this in my notes here somewhere. First uh, John 5.21 tells us, wait for it, you got to want it. First um, John 5.21 tells us that, that we don't have because we don't ask or we don't ask in the will of God and that every good and perfect gift comes from, from God. But the crux of it is this, when you, right, when you ask in God's will that God moves, See, and a lot of times when people say, Matt, my my prayers don't work, my prayers aren't working for me, my prayers aren't working, here's the problem with that. What you're saying is, I can't figure out through my prayer life how to change what God wants to do. I can't figure out through my prayers how to change God's will. Here's the problem, though. God's will is perfect, and, and the way that you have success in your prayer life is not changing God's will, but changing your will to match his. If you can't figure out how your prayers are, are supposed to work, that's it. You figure out what is the will of God, and then you pray. How does that impact me? That's what we did, honestly, with the merger. We said, okay, God, is this your will? Is it your will that these two churches come together? We had an inkling that it was, but we didn't jump the gun. There's a reason that we've been working on this with you for six and a half months, seven months by the time we vote. Guess what? We, as elders and their leadership, had been working on it for a year prior to that. The reason it took so long was because it started with reading the word of God. It started with discerning what's God's will and saying, okay, God, is this your will? 
And then when it became clear that it may be his will, the question was simple. What does that mean for us? If your will is that, is that your kingdom come and that your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and you will us to have unity and you will us to strive to bring the gospel in places where it isn't and to make the kingdom happen now, fine. What does that mean for us? And over the course of time in those prayers and pursuing God, it becomes, as Blake said earlier, it becomes clear that he's willed that together. That's why we have such confidence going forward, even though we don't know. This is the way that your prayer works. Figure out where the will of God is and then figure out what that means for you. Your job in prayer is not to change God's will. Your job in prayer is to align yourself with his because that's where the adventure comes from. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna ask the praise team uh, to come up and... um, and we're going to close at this point. Heavenly Father, God, we, we just, we want to live a life of adventure and faith. And we know that when we read your word, if we trust your word, Father, that that helps us trust your character. And when we trust your character, we can trust your will, the things that happen in our life, even if we don't know them, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how surgeries are going to turn out. We don't know how everything will play out. We don't know how mergers exactly will look. We, we don't know how the relationships will be when we risk forgiveness and reconciliation. We don't know those things. But, but if we trust your word, then we can trust your character. And if we can trust your character, then we can trust your will and, and, and know that even though we don't know what it looks like, we can step out and trust you with it. And that is ridiculous faith. It is so cyclical, God, that when we have ridiculous faith, that your word makes sense and it's true and your character is sure and your will is always perfect. And so, Father, help us to develop that kind of prayer life where we just trust and we just know so that we can live lives of ridiculous faith where we may not know the outcome, but we know the one who holds the outcome in his hands. And we are confident in him and in it. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for um, your truth. We thank you for your words. We thank you for, for the scripture that you've given us. We thank you for the ability to read and understand it. We thank you for the example that Daniel is in a life of ridiculous faith that's rooted in his devotion to you, to your word, and to being connected to you in prayer. Father, we love you and praise you. Amen.